This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, and my name is Lauren Scott. With me today is Phil Kerpen, the president of the American Commitment Foundation. You can find more information about them on Ameri- AmericanCommitment.com, and you can also follow Phil on Twitter, at Kerpen. Phil, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Lauren. How are you? I'm also doing well. All right, before we jump into anything, I really just want you to tell me a little bit about American Commitment Foundation. I understand you're the president. What all does that entail, and what do you guys really seek to achieve? Well, American Commitment Foundation is sort of the C3 charitable research arm of regular American Commitment, which is kind of the main sort of mothership organization. And uh, what we do with both of those groups is really try to engage in the economic policy fights that are on the margin, uh, that a little bit of citizen engagement, education involvement can make the difference and tip the outcome in a more free market direction. And typically, uh, we work on things like taxes and spending and healthcare policy, technology policy, regulation, things like that. But uh, for the last two years, all of that stuff sort of has taken a back seat because in the COVID era, if the government can shut you down and lock you down and order things closed and order people to do things, um, you know, that is totally paralyzing to the economy in a way that makes those other issues much less important. And so we've sort of been diverted from our original mission kind of into the COVID wars. And, uh, you know, I, I, guess that's, I guess that's why I'm talking to you today uh, about the COVID stuff, because it's become sort of the uh, overarching thing that holds the economy back uh, more so than all those other issues. I understand that the American Commitment Foundation has filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court of the United States against the Biden administration's controversial COVID vaccine mandates. How did this amicus brief come to be? Well, you know, we were looking at uh, we were looking at the docket the way it was developing, and there were a lot of really good legal and constitutional arguments, uh, but. Uh, the quality of the science briefing that the Supreme Court was getting was lacking in one particular aspect, and that is nobody was really telling them what had changed with the Omicron variant coming in. And we thought it was really important to lay out the facts because, you know, whatever the merits of the vaccine mandates before Omicron, I think it was still a terrible idea and unlawful and so forth. Uh, Even then, uh, it was completely ridiculous once we had a version of the virus that was vastly less dangerous, much more similar to a typical respiratory infection, and uh, that the vaccines didn't prevent transmission of. And everyone, everywhere you look, vaccinated people are getting it, transmitting it in record numbers. You look at the most liberal cities where everyone's vaccinated and they had all these record numbers. And this was going to the Supreme Court and everyone was sort of acting as if the vaccine stopped transmission. That was the assumption behind these mandate cases. And so uh, we thought it was pretty important to get updated factual information to the justices, not because the cases would be or even should be decided on the facts. Of course, they need to be decided on the law and whether the authority existed to do those mandates. But we knew that the government would be arguing, oh, my God, look at this crisis, look how bad things are, to try to color the way the justices looked at it. And we wanted to get them some 
correct, accurate information. And so we worked with some epidemiologists to put together the brief uh, that kind of brought all those facts to bear on what had changed uh, with Omicron. And uh, it was referenced in the oral argument. The uh, Solicitor General of Ohio mentioned our brief a couple times, which was pretty gratifying. And of course, uh, the court did decide six to three against the OSHA mandate, which was the case that we filed the brief. And I, I almost regret not filing it in both cases, though, because it was actually, I think, even more relevant to the other case that we didn't file it in, the CMS health worker case, uh, where they said that uh, the vaccine was an infection control measure that the secretary could order, and uh, 5-4, they upheld it, um, because there's a certain absurdity to saying something's an infection control measure when it doesn't stop infection. It might reduce disease severity, but it doesn't stop infection. And so we were a little bit disappointed in the split decision, but... um, we're pretty gratified with the outcome in the OSHA case and, uh, you know, the fact that our brief was mentioned. For our listeners who may not be familiar with this term, do you mind explaining exactly what an amicus brief is and maybe what the process will look like? Yeah, it's, it's uh, amici, amici curiae is Latin for friend of the court. And uh, it, it's when you're not a party to a case, uh, but you want to make certain arguments and bring, you can ask for permission to file and what's called an amicus brief uh, as a as sort of a, to make your arguments and kind of add to the record of the case uh, as an outside group. And so in, in Supreme Court cases in particular, it's very common for groups to do this. And I think there were 25 or 30 of them that ended up being filed by, by various different groups. Uh, to me, the most uh, astonishing to me was one that had the name American Medical Association on it, which used to be a well-respected group, and it had all these crazy false claims in it. And then you looked at who the lawyers were that prepared and filed it, and they were actually Democratic election lawyers. <laughs> it was a group run um, by, by Democratic election lawyers. So, and different groups kind of weigh in and provide you know information and arguments uh, to, to the court. And uh, it's not something that we've done before. Um, but, you know, we saw a need, and so we jumped in on, on uh, this particular one. I know there are many opinions out there, and I've even found myself wondering from time to time, but I want to hear your opinion on what you think the motivation is behind the Biden administration's vaccine mandates. I think that, you know, they actually thought that it was a way to end the pandemic, and they don't seem to be willing to change course. Now that it's become clear that these vaccines uh, do not stop transmission and therefore they're not going to stop viral waves, uh, they don't they don't want to admit that that requires them to change and rethink. And so now it's sort of just path dependency. They're not going to veer from the course that they decide to put themselves on. Uh, I don't think it's some nefarious plot or anything like that. Um, you know, obviously, an expansion in government control is something that's attractive to Democrats and their whole worldview. But I think they generally thought, genuinely thought that it would work. And the fact that it obviously doesn't hasn't dissuaded them. Many people are getting this vaccine who do not even believe that the vaccine truly works, but it simply just makes life more convenient for them. What is your opinion on this and how do we go about dealing with situations such as this? Well, you know, I think that people need to, you know, people need to decide, I think, um, you know, whether they want to uh, kind of accommodate evil. And it's a difficult philosophical question, whether you want to participate and be complicit in a scheme that is wrong, um, you know, for practical prudential reasons, or whether you want to, you know, accept the personal sacrifice of 
withdrawing and refusing to participate. And you know, I don't know that there's a right answer. It's kind of a timeless philosophical question in a certain sense. Uh, I personally will not go to a venue that does a you know vaccine mandate or you know I, I mean so I, I don't I'm not going to restaurants in DC right now which are requiring that because I don't feel that I should participate in something like that that I should be complicit in uh, you know that said you know I know a lot of people that I respect who feel the other way that they you know they want to support businesses uh, you know whatever the rules are it's better than so it's I, I don't know if there's a right answer but the way that I would my personal belief the way that I think about it is when something is wrong I don't want to be part of it. Going back to the amicus brief, I know you guys are partnering with some people at Stanford University and also Brown University. Do you mind telling me a little bit about their involvement? Yeah, I reached out to two really good um, COVID expert uh, kind of critics of uh, lockdown and coercive measures, uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford and uh, Dr. Andy Bostom from Brown, um, because I could have made these arguments myself, but I have no credibility, no expertise uh, relevant to the area. Uh, you know, I, I could argue that, you know, that doesn't matter because we're just citing facts and data, but I thought it, was, it would uh, kind of bulk up the credibility of the brief if we had some really well-credentialed experts on it. And so, you know, I kind of had a draft already, but I asked them to review it, and they changed some things. They added some things. They uh, advised, and uh, they... they agreed to have their names associated with it. And so I was very grateful to them for that. This is Lauren Scott on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, interviewing Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment Foundation. You can learn more about their foundation at AmericanCommitment.com, and you can also follow Phil on Twitter at Kirpin. When do you think we will get the results of this case? Well, we, got, we did get the results. So the results were sort of a split decision. They, they decided on a six to three decision to stop the OSHA mandate. That was the one for all employers in the country with more than 100 employees. So that one was killed. Uh, not only is it not taking effect, but for now at least the Biden administration is not attempting to resurrect it. So that one's been withdrawn. Uh, on the other hand, they decided five to four to allow the mandate for healthcare workers. And so healthcare workers are now under a vaccine mandate, uh, unless they can get a medical or religious exemption, they're supposed to be fired um, if they don't want or refuse to take the vaccine. And so some states have been acting to codify, uh, you know, those exemptions and require employers to accept them. And, uh, that, and that's kind of where that stands. Although, you know, the way the Supreme Court worded their decision. They said it was permissible as an infection control measure. And so I think that as it goes back to lower courts, goes back to district courts and uh, the, the main cases in Missouri, uh, we could see some interesting factual arguments kind of relevant to the points that we make in our brief about, you know, can, can this be an infection control mechanism if it doesn't stop infections anymore with Omicron? And so I, I think that there will be further litigation on that one, but for the moment at least, uh, the health worker one is in effect. So it was a divided outcome at the Supreme Court. They stopped the OSHA mandate, but they allowed the health care mandate. I know this may be a difficult question to answer, and you may just have to give me your best guess, but if all fails and the Biden administration gets away with this unconstitutional mandate, where do you think our nation will be headed and what will be in store for us? You know, I think the 
I think this all goes to sort of the core question of, you know, how much power does the government have to, to order people to make personal health decisions? And, you know, will the sphere of individual liberty be substantially constrained by new government powers that are created kind of in the emergency of a pandemic? And one of the, um, you know, one of sort of the stories of the history of the country and of the world is that when you have these crises, and usually they're wars, but they can be other things like a pandemic, you have this kind of ratcheting up in the power of government and uh, the size and intrusiveness of it. And it doesn't go back afterwards. It kind of stays at that new higher level. And so I think that's the big challenge that we have as conservatives right now is to try to prevent that from happening, to try to stop that ratchet, to try to return things to true 2019 normal, not new normal, and uh, to put kind of the government power genie back in the bottle. And I, I think that state legislatures uh, really need to take the lead on this because the vast majority of the abuses of power haven't been these things coming out of the Biden administration. They've been local dictates coming out of governors or mayors or town, you know, and, and we really need to write the process in the sense of there shouldn't be an emergency declaration that can be used one after another after another to rule by decree for years on end. Uh, we've got to fix our institutions so this can never happen again. And I think that's going to be uh, the big challenge because I don't know how this turns out. I don't know if we can actually do that or if this is just the way it's going to be from now on. And every winter when whatever that winter's respiratory virus crops up, we're going to see these sorts of measures come back. And there's a real danger of that, particularly in liberal areas. So I think that's the big fight that we're in right now. And, and to, to answer, to refuse to answer your question, I, I don't know how it turns out. It could go either way. But it's very important that we do everything we can, I think, um, to try to stop it from going in the direction of, you know, government having this total power over our, our lives and our bodies. It's great to be at a place such as Hillsdale College where we really do value truth and we value freedom. I mean, I talk to many of my friends about the vaccine mandates and we strongly disagree and many of us haven't gotten the vaccine ourselves. But I want to know what else can we do? What else can we do to fight for our freedom and show others around us the truth? Well, I think that, um, first of all, you, you made a very good choice of... Uh, colleges because it's insane what's been happening on most campuses in this country and the extent to which, you know, people are in the absolute lowest risk group are under the most restrictive conditions imaginable on seemingly without end. And uh, there are very few exceptions to that. And, you know, you've chosen one of them. So you've chosen wisely in that regard. Uh, I, and in terms of what you can do, I mean, I think that uh, we just need to keep making the argument and we need to not shy from, from criticism. You know, I mean, the, uh, you know, the, um, the facts and the data are on our side, I think. But even besides that, even if all of the facts and the data were as bad and as horrible and as scary as the uh, sort of team apocalypse people say, it still wouldn't justify unlimited government power. It still wouldn't justify arbitrary mandates that don't go through our proper legislative uh, process. And so, you know, I think we need to just keep making the arguments and just, you know, keep engaging. And, you know, over time, more people are sort of getting fed up. It, it becomes more and more obvious that these extraordinarily intrusive measures have done nothing to stop COVID because people keep getting COVID. <laughs> Lauren, you know, yeah. I mean, how many of the people who thought if I take three vaccine shots and wear two masks all the time, I'll never get COVID ended up getting it this way? A lot. And so they've got to be sort of reconciling in their own heads, wait a second, maybe all of this was for nothing. And so I think as those numbers of people get larger and larger, um, you know, our 
arguments become more and more resonant. So I just think we need to keep pushing back and uh, you know, keep, keep make, having the argument until we win. All right. Well, thank you. I believe that's all the questions I have for you today, but I really just want to thank you for joining me on, uh, on the show today. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Once again, this has been Lauren Scott on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM interviewing Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment Foundation. You can find out more information at AmericanCommitment.com and you can follow Phil on Twitter at Kirpin. <laughs>